Welcome to the Southcrest Live podcast. If this is your first time to listen, please connect with us at www.southcrest.org for more information. Thanks for listening and enjoy today's message. This week on Southcrest Live with Dr. David Wilson, we continue our Sermon on the Mount study series. Jesus said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Well, what are the substitutes that people often turn to to try to fill that hunger? And how is the hunger ultimately satisfied in God? Well, turn your Bible to Matthew 5, 6 as we hear the starving that satisfies from Pastor David Wilson. Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. Last Sunday, you might say the sermon, it was the sermon on the amount. (laughs) This Sunday, it's the sermon on the mount. And we're not talking about a horse. Matthew chapter 5, we are going to start looking at the sermon, the most famous sermon preached by Jesus. Now, a lot of funny things are said about sermons. Um, A stranger, some people think sermons are way too long. You you already think it's too long, and I had him started. A man who had never visited a church before came in late, and and the sermon was already going, and he sat down and listened to the sermon for a few minutes, and it seemed to go on and on and on. And finally, he turned to the person he sat down by, and he said, how long has he been preaching here? And the man said, three years. And he said, well, I'll wait then. He should be almost through by now. (laughs) I had a man ask me one time, he said, preacher, what makes sermons and biscuits better? I said, I give up. He said, shortening. (laughs) I'll try not to bore you today. The Sermon on the Mount, you, you've heard that term, and, and it's, it becomes very familiar to a lot of people who've been in church all their lives, but you need to understand that this message probably is the most important message that Matthew records, for sure. Even though Jesus reiterates some of these truths in other places, he has it all right here condensed. Oswald Chambers refers to these as lovely and poetic, but he also says their powerful impact is that of spiritual torpedoes. And I agree with Philip Yancey who says, if we fail to understand the message of the Sermon on the Mount, we fail to understand Jesus. The first two chapters of Matthew have the Christmas story in it. You know, an angel appearing to Joseph and Mary and Joseph taking Jesus after he's born, taking him to Egypt because of the jealousy of Herod. And, and then Matthew also tells us that they returned from Egypt to Nazareth. In chapter 3, we find John the Baptist who is preaching who actually baptizes Jesus, that sort of initiates the earthly ministry of Jesus. Then in chapter 4, you find Jesus going through the temptation. And and then toward the end of chapter 4, you find a summary of his three main activities. He is preaching, he's calling people to follow him, and he's healing people. And in verse 17 of chapter 4, it includes the text of, I guess, one of his first sermons, which was this, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. Wouldn't you like my sermon to be that short and don't answer that? (laughs) 
But it brings us to chapter 5. And today, I want to give you some background of this. Before you really can interpret Scripture correctly, you need to know what's going on. You need to understand the context so that you don't pull anything out of context. And you're also going to see how relevant all of this is to today. That even though the context is a little different as far as the setting around it, we're still living in the same kind of generations and society that were going on when the Sermon on the Mount was preached. And so I hope this doesn't bore you today. I want it to be something that will be helpful to you because as you begin, as we begin to walk through this, you're going to see how revolutionary this was when Jesus spoke these words to these people that were listening to him. Now, it doesn't seem that strange to us because we've heard it a lot of our lives, but this was a revolutionary thing to them. So first, let's talk about the setting of this sermon, and, and I really want to look at it from three different angles quickly. The first of all, I want to look at it from the biblical angle. The Old Testament ends with a curse. Listen to the last verse of Malachi. Malachi 4, 6, and he will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the land with a curse. Now, it'd been 400 years since they'd heard a word from God, since a, through a prophet or a preacher, they had not heard anything. And then 400 years later, John the Baptist shows up and he draws some attention because he is definitely a different character. But the Old Testament ends with a warning of a curse. And then we find the New Testament beginning with the promise of blessing. The Old Testament focuses on Mount Sinai with the law and the judgment and the, and the thunder and lightning and its warnings of curses and judgment. But the New Testament is characterized by Mount Zion where there's grace and salvation and healing and its promises of peace and blessing. And a good verse to read about this is Hebrews 12, 18 to 24, talks about the difference between Mount Sinai and Mount Zion. The Old Testament demonstrates the need for salvation. It, the law was given to show how sinful we are. And how short we fall according to the righteousness of a holy God. We don't even come close because nobody can keep on the law. And the Old Testament shows that. But the New Testament message, it offers a Savior, the solution to all of it. The one who paid the price, the one whose blood covered our sin that we were singing about and the choir was singing about. And so Jesus begins with a proper presentation of the Old Testament to show them their sin, and then he invites them to a new way of life through the Savior himself, Jesus Christ. The Old Testament's a book about Adam and all of the generations that follow. And Adam's story we know is tragic. Adam not only was the first man, but we could call him the first king because God gave him dominion over the whole earth. He didn't have any subjects, but he had dominion over the whole earth. I guess the animals were his subject. But we know that that king fell. That king rebelled. And when he did, it brought a curse on the earth. It brought a curse on creation. And we, we are born into that creation. We're born into this curse. But then came the second Adam now. Romans calls Jesus the second Adam, the perfect one, the new sovereign king. The, the first Adam sinned and left a curse. 
the second Adam, Jesus, which is, about to, which is coming on the scene, he is sinless and he is leaving a blessing. The Old Testament talks about the generations of Adam and ends with a curse. The New Testament talks about the generations that follow Jesus and ends with this promise. In Revelation 22, 3, there shall no longer be any curse. You see, the the Old Testament shows man in his misery, and the New Testament gives life to show man how blessed he is through Jesus Christ. And so, Jesus Christ, the new king of the earth, has come to reverse the curse. Now, I want to add something here. There's not going to be any other new kings. Not after Jesus. He's the king of kings, the Lord of lords. And we're not looking for another one. We're looking for the one we know to come back and set up his earthly kingdom. And then there'll be a new heaven and a new earth eventually. And, and that's the king, that's the Jesus who we're looking for. But the Sermon on the Mount is what we call the Sermon on the Mount here in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is a revelation from the great king, the king of, the king of kings. It is a revelation of promise and blessing and salvation. So the biblical part of it, you understand the Old and the New Testament. Now let's look at the political part of it. The Jews were looking for a Messiah. They'd heard about him. They'd heard, they, would, they, were, they knew the prophecies. The Old Testament prophesied about Jesus coming. And you know how many prophecies that he fulfilled when he came. But they were looking for a guy that was going to be politically strong and militarily strong and was going to overthrow the hated Romans and set up a prosperous Jewish kingdom that would lead the world. He would be greater than any king, leader, or prophet in their history. And when he first showed up, he started doing miraculous things. And John chapter 6 records that after he had been miraculously feeding the multitude on the far side of the Sea of Galilee, it says in John six fifteen that they came to take him by force to make him king. But Jesus saw that what they were anticipating and disappeared because that wasn't the kind of kingdom he came to set up. Now, later on, when he was standing before Pilate and under trial and Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered in John 18, 36, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world and my servants would be fighting that I might not be delivered up to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. And the thrust of this message, of this, of this Sermon on the Mount, as we calling, as call it, is that the king has come to talk about the internal changes, the spiritual and moral changes that happens in lives rather than the external. You don't find Jesus trying to set up a political kingdom or start a bunch of social reform. He's coming to say, the people that follow me, their lives are going to change from the inside out. And his concern is for what men are because he knows when that will determine what they do and yet the ideals the ideas and the ideals and truths of this message are exactly the opposite of the world because for example Jesus spoke about John the Baptist and he said John the Baptist here's Jesus's words John the Baptist is the greatest man who ever lived up until that time. 
Now you think, well, wait a minute. John the Baptist had no possessions. He had no home. He lived in the wilderness. He dressed in a hair garment. He ate locusts and wild honey. He was not a part of a religious system. He had no financial, military, or political power. And in addition to that, he preached a message that the world thought was absurd. And Jesus calls him the greatest. By the worldly standards, he was a misfit. And a failure. And I'm going to tell you, by worldly standards, the people who follow Jesus are going to look like losers, according to the world. After all, the followers of Jesus are shown to be humble and compassionate and meek and yearning for righteousness and merciful and pure and hard and peacemakers and persecuted for the sake of the righteousness that they practice. And the world says, you Christians are a bunch of neurotic losers. But Jesus states here, he said, the world may hate you and the world may despitefully use you. But the fact is, the people of the kingdom of God are going to be different than the people in a lost world. The third thing I want you to notice is, I'll call it the religious setting. This is real interesting. Now, I'm just talking about the Jewish people, the Israelites There were four groups, religious groups, that when Jesus came to the earth, they were pretty much organized. Now, now, first of all, you know about the Pharisees. Okay, the Pharisees were the ones that lived in the Old Testament, took the Mosaic law, the law given to Moses, and through the years, their rabbis would interpret that law and add to it and add to it and add to it. And by the time Jesus got there, the Pharisees were those that had all of these laws as they looked back to the Mosaic law and all of the rabbinic traditions that had been given. Now, the Sadducees, on the other hand, were the religious liberals of the day. They did away with the supernatural. They didn't believe in the resurrection of the body. And they basically interpreted these laws and these traditions to fit their lifestyle. They interpreted it any way they want to. They were the more more liberal group. Then you had the Essenes. E-S-S-E-N-E-S. Essenes. The Essenes, this is my term, they were the germaphobes. That's really not accurate. I mean, they believed that they're, they, to be religious and to be right with God, they had to get away from everybody because you were going to contaminate them. They had to be clean. They, they went through so many ritual purifying ceremonies. It was incredible. And so they left everyone. They, ran, they didn't run away. They uh, separated themselves. The northwest, northwest part of the Dead Sea, place called Qumran, and, and, and now they've excavated a lot of this, and you wouldn't believe how many bathtubs they had. And that's not what they called them, but they were, they were places. They, they, they went through many baths, many of them. One, and I mean, they just kept themselves clean on the outside all the time. But they had to get away from everybody because they didn't want you to contaminate them. And they didn't want to be contaminated by society. And then you had the zealots. The zealots were, were a fanatical group of nationalists who thought that the right religion centered in radical political activism. They were revolutionaries who looked down on their fellow Jews because they wouldn't take up arms against the Romans. So let's put it in a way that you can easily remember it. 
The Pharisees basically said, look back. Look back at the law. Look back at the traditions. Or go back, I should say. Go back. The Sadducees basically said, go ahead. We'll find a way to make it legal. (laughs) We'll change the scripture. The Essenes basically said, go away. We're going to separate ourselves. And the Zealots basically said, go against everything that's their tradition. Now, folks, aren't you glad we don't have any people like that today? (laughs) I'm so thankful we don't have any groups like that today. We just don't call them that, do we? But that's the group, that's the religious group that Jesus is beginning to speak to. This is the kind of people that were going to be in the multitudes. And these are the people who are going to be turned on their ear because it goes completely against what they've stood up for. To the Pharisees, he's going to say true spirituality is internal. It's not all the rituals you go through. To the Sadducees, he's going to say, look, it's God's way, not man's way or whatever you make up. It's God's way. To the Essenes, he's going to say, it's, not the, it's the matter of the heart, not the body. And to the Zealots, he's going to say, it's a matter of worship. It's not revolution. You see, true religion in God's kingdom is not a question of ritual or philosophy or location or military might like these four groups. He says... Those who have a right relationship with God through Jesus and have a right attitude toward other people, those are the true followers of Jesus. Now, the Lord summed it up this way. He said, I say to you, this is in verse 20 of chapter 5, I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And so he's going to show what real righteousness looks like. Now, the righteousness that you and I make up, it won't handle the scrutiny of God or the examination of God because our righteousness compared to a holy God, there's no comparison. So the setting, what's the significance of this sermon? The theme of it is the gospel of the kingdom. He's going to mention the kingdom time and time again. And he's going to talk about the citizens of the kingdom. Who who are real disciples of Jesus? Who are they? And what are their characteristics? Then he's going to talk about the righteousness of the kingdom and the high standards that are demanded by the king. Now, what's really going to make some of them mad is that he's going to show, he's not going to contradict the moral law of the Old Testament. We're going to see there were three sets of laws given to the Israelites. And two sets of those laws have changed. The ceremonial law and the national laws of Israel have changed. But the moral law, Jesus is going to reiterate that and take it a step further. He will disagree with the Pharisees, Sadducees interpretation of that moral law. But he's not going to disagree with the Old Testament moral law. The Bible does not contradict itself. It's not going to. And Jesus is not going to contradict the Old Testament, but you'll see that. But then thirdly, Jesus concludes by inviting people to be part of the kingdom. He, He talks about the beginning of it and the process upon the way. And then when you get to the end, what will be there? And so we see several reasons why it's so important. First of all, 
You cannot live out the truths of the Sermon on the Mount without being born again. A religious person can't live this. A good person can't live this. A person must know Jesus and committed their life and have his spirit living in them, being born again, as he told Nicodemus, or you can't live this. A lost person will look at this and go, you're out of your mind. And yet Jesus said, the people who follow me, this is the way you live. This is the standard. These are the, this is the righteousness that Lord is, is asking and requiring. The sermon intends to show that only through Jesus Christ can we meet God's standards. I, I hate to tell you all this, but you can't be good enough on your own. A lot of you are good looking. A lot of you are financially well off. A lot of you have a great pedigree. A lot of you have a lot of religious background, but nobody here, no one here can get to the Lord on their own. And no man on this earth can give it to you. It's only through Jesus Christ. Only. Only. No, no additions. Only. And then we're going to see the, the significance. Now, let's look at verse 1. And you're going to say, well, you're out of your mind if you think there's something worth noting in verses 1 and 2. Well, I'm out of my mind because there is something worth noting here. First, I want you to notice the scene of the sermon. And seeing the multitudes. All right, let's stop there. Seeing the multitudes, what's that got to do with anything? Everything Jesus said on this occasion was said to the multitudes. Now, his disciples were probably up close to him, but there were a lot of people hearing this. Have you noticed that Jesus is always concerned with the multitudes? In Matthew 9, 36, he sees them distressed and downcast. In Matthew 14, he sees them sick. In Matthew 15, 32, he sees them hungry. Folks, let me tell you something. Whether you're physically ill or healthy, emotionally stable or demon-possessed, financially poor or rich, politically oppressed or powerful, religiously insignificant or influential, intellectually ignorant or educated, Jesus has compassion on you. It covers all of us. Jesus attracted all kinds of people to him. Just like today. No one in here is just alike. All of us come from different backgrounds. His intention was to drive them to a recognition of their sin, and then they would see the need of a Savior. You see, if, if you don't realize how separated from God you are in sin and how hopeless you are, then you don't think you need anything. But when these people saw that they're, even though they were keeping all of these rituals and the laws, they thought they were pretty good, Jesus said, you're not even close. Because it comes from the inside, and only one thing can wash away the sin, and that's the sacrifice that Jesus made for us. So he saw the multitudes. You know, every Sunday we have multitudes here. Some of you may think nobody cares about you. I read an interesting phrase. I want to read it to you. It said, one person said, in any church service, the congregation preaches more than half the sermon. Hmm. The congregation brings an atmosphere with it. So, folks, I'm here to tell you that if I preach a sorry sermon, it's more your fault than mine. 
It says the atmosphere is either a barrier through which the preacher's word cannot penetrate or else it is such an expectancy that even the poorest sermon becomes a living flame. How did you come to church today? Did you come expecting the Holy Spirit to speak to your heart? Or did you come with the attitude, I dare you, preacher, try to make me listen today. It's interesting what people say about sermons. One person asked the church decorator what she did with the flowers after the service. And she innocently replied, oh, we take them to the people who are sick after the sermon. (laughs) One man told his pastor at the end of the sermon, he said, pastor, you were really good this morning. You interrupted my thoughts at least six times. Jesus notices you. You're not lost in the crowd. You may think no one else knows you, but Jesus saw the multitudes. Now, what that means is he didn't just see a crowd, but he understood. He knew what they needed. And Jesus knew what you needed before you ever walked in here today. But then look what it says. And he, uh, he saw the multitude. He went up on a mountain a mountain. That mountain didn't have a name. I've been to that hill. It's really a hill. Now, if you're by the Sea of Galilee, it looks like a mountain, but it's really not a mountain like you see in New Mexico or Colorado. It's, it's a hill, but it's a natural, natural made amphitheater. It, it's, it's sloped in such a way when you're standing down on the shore of the, of the Sea of Galilee, you look up and there's a sway there and it goes up this pretty tall hill. But it's a natural amphitheater. If Jesus stood down at the bottom and spoke, you could hear him up at the top without a PA system. And so that's where it was. But we have named that place. Now we call it the Mount of the Beatitudes or the Mount of the Sermon on the Mount. But it was really just a spot. But the fact is, Jesus went up on that mountain. And someone said the greatest preacher who ever lived preached the greatest sermon that ever preached. And when he got through preaching, chapter 7, verse 28 says, the multitudes were amazed at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. You see, in those days, if you were going to speak, you needed to quote some reputable source. But Jesus didn't quote any rabbis and he didn't quote any traditions. He spoke with authority because he didn't need anybody else's authority. He is God, man. He spoke from the word. He spoke from the Lord. Now, I want to show you something else. Look at verse 1. And when he was seated... Folks, we're going to make a change around here. We're doing church all wrong. I'm supposed to be seated. You're supposed to be standing. I'm teasing. When he was seated. Now, don't miss that phrase. Because when a rabbi sat down to teach, it meant it was worth hearing. Now, rabbis could teach while they were walking, and it would be more informal. It would be more unofficial. But when he sat down, it became official. Something you need to listen. You know, today you hear of professors in universities that hold a certain chair of a department. He's the chair of the department. It's a, it's a, it's a designation of honor. 
I mean, it means that they are the, they're important in that area. Well, here it signifies that the rabbi, when he sat down, it meant he was about to say something that you needed to take note of. So the words of Jesus right here are nothing to take lightly. He sat down. And began to speak. And it says his disciples came to him, indicating that they were in the audience. The standards of spiritual life that Jesus is giving here didn't apply to everybody in that multitude, only those who followed Jesus. Because even in the multitude, there were those who were probably just there because Jesus fed them or did some miracle. And you're going to find later when you, when you study Jesus that a lot of the multitudes turned away from him because he didn't become the kind of king that they wanted to have at that time. I'm just about done. I could tell some of y'all ready to go. Finally, I want to mention the substance of the sermon. Now, you're probably, have you ever thought about, look at verse 2. Then he opened his mouth and taught them. Why in the world did he have to write that? I mean, doesn't it go without thinking that you have to open your mouth to teach? Huh? He opened his mouth and taught them. Well, of course he did. But that is an important phrase. Because that is a, a phrase that was used often to introduce a message that was especially serious and important. And Matthew's saying, you don't want to miss this. He opened his mouth and said this. You need to hear it. It's serious. It's, it's heartfelt testimony. And his sermon is authoritative. It was delivered with the utmost concern. Now, in this sermon, Jesus establishes a standard of living, a standard of following him, a standard of conducting ourselves that is completely opposite of the world. But I want you to know one thing, that what Jesus is offering, this blessedness that we're going to see, didn't come from any of your circumstances. And it didn't come from anything the world had to offer. It only comes through Jesus. So that means that no matter what circumstances you are in and no matter what the world throws at you, it can't take away the blessedness that comes from Christ. Amen. Don't forget that. Because sometimes you'll feel like God's forgotten me. I, I don't know where he is and, and so forth. And, and this new way of living comes from the Lord himself. Who knows more about a product than the manufacturer? And when you buy a power tool or an appliance or something that new, it comes with a manual. Do y'all ever look at those manuals? Depends on what it is. But have you ever noticed the first few pages seem ridiculous? You must plug this in. Oh, yeah, I knew that. But obviously, there are people who don't know that. Maybe they stick their finger in the socket and hold the plug. I don't know. But, but so I have to flip through a few of those pages going, let me get to the stuff that tells me what this thing will do, what the limitations are, how do I clean it, how do I protect it, whatever. Let me get to the good stuff. Well, that's how a lot of you are looking at what I'm telling you today. 
But I'm here to tell you that we, we look to the manufacturer to tell us about whatever it is we just bought. Well, no one knows you and me better than the one who created us. But a lot of people don't turn to the creator to find out how they're supposed to live and what he intended for us and the purpose of our life. But see, when you come to Christ, he lets you know the purpose you have. He lets you know you're worth something. He lets you know you're not here taking up space. He lets you know you're here for a reason. He lets you know that you're important. He lets you know that he loves you and wants to give you a life worth living. We're going to look at all of this. But my question to you today is, do you know Jesus? Not about him, but do you know Jesus? Because you can sit in church Sunday after Sunday after Sunday and still not know Jesus. I've met a lot of people like that, not necessarily here, but in my years of ministry, I, I've always said some of the meanest people on earth sit in church every Sunday. And the reason is they don't know Jesus. They know religion. They know, the, they know they're supposed to be out by a certain time, and they know that somebody better not be in their chair, and they, better, they also know that, that you better not preach on this because so-and-so might be offended, and so on and so on, but they don't have a clue what it means to know Jesus. But today you can know him. You don't have to join our church. You have to turn from your sin, ask Christ, ask God to forgive you, and commit your life to Jesus. Not just praying a prayer. You don't just pray a prayer. You pray with all your heart and you commit your life to Jesus. And he changes you from the inside out. You don't have to get all your stuff together to come to God. You come to the Lord and you commit your life to him. And he helps get all your stuff together. Would you pray with me? Thank you, Pastor David. Today we learn that the fake substitutes of materialism, position, success, pleasure, even religion cannot fill the God-sized hole in every person. But there is a solution for the seeker as God provides the salvation only he can provide. Salvation for us from the penalty, power, and the presence of sin in our lives. Both personal and positional righteousness come from him alone. Thank you for joining us for this week's message. Be sure to catch our next installment of the Southcrest Live podcast. Thank you for listening to today's message. If you would like more information, to make a commitment, or to request prayer, please text the word podcast to 555-888. You can also connect with us on our Southcrest app or our website for complete worship services or to plan to visit us in person. Thanks again for listening.